Now, with the blinds closed, on the fourth floor of a gray building in a small gray office that used to belong to a newspaper editor, he says hello into his headset. He says his name. He says his title. In a blue shirt with a white collar, he leans back in his chair and blows a yellow bubble of chewing gum. Calculating, he closes his eyes, lifts a pink cup close to his lips, and takes a deep breath through his nose. Without taking a drink, he sets the cup back down. He says, okay, leans forward, grabs a pencil, and takes a new call. He says hello into his headset. He takes the gum out of his mouth and sets it on a wrapper on the table. He says it went terrific. He says his candidate delivered an aggressive speech. Now, a different night. After a yelp of success and a few claps of his hands, he is running down a small gray hallway and then out into the night, repeating over and over that he must find out what his candidate's opponent said. And then he is in front of the microphones, the bright lights casting the lip of his profile in stark relief. He is repeating the talking points he drafted only minutes earlier, a few rooms ago. And now he's back in the small gray office and he's on a corded telephone and he's softly pacing, softly threatening. He says to the person on the other end of the line that they will be laughed at if they pursue the story, thought of as crazy, scummy, that they'll never work again. We aren't going to lose, he says. We're going to win. The sleeves of his denim jacket are rolled up. The blinds are rolled up. And in the glass of the window, you can see the campaign manager reflected from the other side of the room next to a map of the United States. Hello listeners and welcome to the Criterion Cast where we discuss the important contemporary and classic films of the Criterion Collection. We're recording this on October 11th, 2020. I'm Jordan Esso and I'll be your host today for episode 211 as we turn our attention to Spine 602, the 1993 documentary The War Room by Chris Hedges and D.A. Pennebaker. This is an extraordinary film about the 1992 presidential campaign of William Jefferson Clinton. And with our upcoming election a mere 23 days away, it is a good time to talk about presidential campaigns and American politics. So let's meet our roundtable. First, we have Scott Nye down in Los Angeles, who recently retweeted the important PSA that you can return your ballot at official ballot drop boxes outside all 73 Los Angeles public library locations. This is very good to remember. I only wish it was also true in Houston. Good morning, Scott. Yeah, I was uh, going to echo the same thing. I uh, wish everyone had an e- as easy a time voting as we do in California. Here, here. Second, we have David Blakesley in the battleground state of Michigan, whose governor was recently the target of a failed but frightening kidnapping plot. How are you, and what is the energy like in your community right now? Well, yeah, literal battleground. I mean, it, it feels like if there's going to be a Civil War redux breakout, Michigan may be one of those... Uh, true blood-soaked battlegrounds. I mean, there are people with guns and people who are kind of crazy and, and, and really flying off the handle, and it's palpable here. I mean, there's a lot of energy. Um, I'm being pretty quiet on social media for reasons I might explain here, might just keep to myself. I don't know, but it's uh, it's a pretty tense time. There's a lot of drama. There's a lot of friction in the air and uh, a lot of uncertainty about which way Michigan's going to fall this time. I mean, I feel you know, confident about, you know, it going in the right direction. But, you know, we knew that 2016 kind of pulled a big surprise as far as how our state voted. And, uh, yeah, it's pretty contentious over here. Intense. Um, if you don't want me asking, what is your plan for voting? Not how you're going to vote, but how are you going to get your vote in? 
I'm going to actually vote in person. Uh, the, the, the place where I go is right down the street from my house. It's a small neighborhood church, and uh, I've never had any issues or difficulties getting in, so I'm going to go ahead and stay with a traditional uh, vote in person. But that's just only because I'm very familiar with the routine for myself. I know for a lot of other people, you know, um, there's a lot of other reasons why voting early makes a lot of sense. So I certainly support that. But for me, I'm going to continue my traditional practice. Yeah, um, I'm sort of with you. I was mandatory mail-in voting here at a certain point, and I'm I'm definitely have a mail-in vote now. But I'm going to take it to a polling place on election day, just for the purpose of being actively involved. I think I'll just emotionally get something out of that. I'm kind of curious what the poll location is going to look like, mm-hmm. um, what the energy around them is going to be, and I'm interested in getting my vote counted as soon as possible. Third, we have on the line, Arik Devins, who's also in California and Berkeley there. Uh, So like me and Scott, you have plenty of options for getting your vote in. If you don't mind me asking, what is your plan? Yeah, we're going to, I've been doing mail-in voting for a few elections now, and it is awesome. Um, I definitely think everyone should have access to that. And, uh, but my my wife is, this is her first time voting. She uh, became a citizen in the last four years. So this will be the first election she gets to vote in. And so we're going to, uh, take our, I, in California, I'm not particularly worried. I have to say about the votes not getting there, uh, but sure. we are going to take them to, uh, a drop off box and put them in because she wants that, you know, visceral feeling like you were talking about of, of having participated in some more way than just sending off a letter. So we're going to, we're not probably not going to go into a polling place, but we'll go to a, a drop off box somewhere. Right on. Uh, congratulations to her. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. So I'll jump right into a quick film summary here. The War Room is about Bill Clinton's 1992 presidential campaign staff. It focuses primarily on the headquarters in Little Rock, Arkansas, and the game-changing rapid response strategy directed by the duo of James Carville and George Stephanopoulos. So Carville is 47-year-old, whip-smart, charismatic, controversial personality, George Stephanopoulos was much younger. He was only 31 years old. He had just come from a pretty great job on this uh, congressional floor, working as a deputy floor man for Dick Gephardt. And, but, you know, ambitious guy, uh, more of a quiet personality, kind of a quiet confidence about him. The film begins with a lead up to the New Hampshire primary on February 18th, where Clinton famously came in second behind Paul Tsongas, but was able to kind of spin the story in his favor. And it concludes with the general election victory for Clinton on the night of November 3rd, defeating incumbent president George Herbert Walker Bush. But the film isn't really about Clinton, and it's definitely not about Bush at all. Um, Bush isn't painted as kind of the antagonist of the story. It's it's sort of a man-against-all-odds story. It's like a sports documentary in that way, in my opinion, because the opponent is the race itself. Let's get initial impressions, and let's start with Scott. Uh, yeah, this is a film that I first saw back in college, and we had like a political documentary class. It was really cool. We watched uh, like a lot of uh, Barbara Koppel and stuff like that. Um, cool political documentaries, and this seemed like an extension of all those. You know, kind of a direct experience behind the scenes of the campaign. And at the time, I found it really exciting and invigorating. And it's hard not to get caught up in the energy of the film, especially on first view. Uh, the more I've seen it over the years, the more it uh, that excitement has kind of faded, actually. And it kind of starts to feel more and more like a, a commercial end of the campaign, that it kind of acts as propaganda, both for the candidate and for the campaign staff, especially, who 
uh, it must be said, got kind of lucrative jobs following its rather modest commercial success, but you can sense that uh, it was, this is a film that was seen in the right circles. And both Stephanopoulos and Carville kind of spun it into careers based on the personas that were established in that film. And the more I watch it, the more it feels like the campaign had access, but only what the, or sorry, the filmmakers had access, but only what the campaign staff wanted them to see. And I see the campaign staff shaping the film more than the filmmakers. Very, very interesting and good points. What about you, David? Yeah, well, I'm glad that maybe I'm not the only wet blanket here, <laughs> the first person to interject a note of negativity, because I, I have a similar reaction to Scott. I mean, there's a lot of things I like about the film and a lot of uh, very impressive achievements that, you know, that are on display here. So I, I will definitely spend time unpacking all of that, but I just have to uh, sort of open up with a certain degree of ambivalence about watching uh, those two personalities, Carville and Stephanopoulos, who, you know, I understand the dynamics that they were up against. You know, if I have to go with, you know, who I'm glad won, yeah, I'm, I'm certainly, you know, more pleased with a, a first term of Clinton than a second term of H.W. Uh, Bush. But there's so many elements here that I think uh, offer sort of a, a preview of some of the dismal political developments that our country has, has had to deal with in the years since then. I mean, including Clinton's, you know, moral and character flaws and the controversies that would engulf his presidency and, and really set the stage for, you know, many, many unfortunate developments, uh, as well as, as uh, Scott's already alluded to, uh, a little bit of a, 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 a propagandistic commercial aspect here where we are seeing definitely some very interesting things going on in the political campaign in the you know the human uh dynamics that are you know instigating and propelling all of all of the headlines and all of the subsequent developments that that uh, we would all be living under you know during the years you know that followed this you know pretty pivotal election but uh yeah there's a certain mournfulness that i see uh, sort of uh Pre previewed uh, because of you know, of the problems that that originated from the Clinton presidency, and uh, and how it sort of equipped the other side to uh, take advantage of that, and and again just this whole spectacle of seeing the American populace kind of manipulated on a grand scale by by all the major players, but you know you just sort of see how. Uh, attitudes and opinions are shaped by a few smart, fast thinking. Uh, you know, social engineers uh, massaging the message, you know, hitting the talking points, doing the spin. And so you sort of see that sickening sausage making spectacle on display here. So there's dynamics, there's drama, there's human interest and, and, and there's some great filmmaking, you know, going on. But what it's actually showing is kind of kind of dismal. And what about you, Arik? Yeah, I think it's uh, <laughs> three for three on the sort of lukewarm vibe for the film. I, I like it. I, I think it's um, it, it's it's very interesting, and and I think it's well made. Uh, and and I you know I've seen it a couple times now, and 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 I you know I can watch it and I enjoy it. I think that um, maybe we'll get into it, but the sequel film that came out in two thousand eight, which is far less artistic, uh, far less well made. Uh, is in some ways far more interesting and fascinating, especially from the maybe just because it's closer in time to now. But I think they, the the way that they go back and actually talk about everything that was going on back then is far, far, far more interesting. Because one of the complaints I have about the War Room is that 
the criterion blurb will tell you and and you know partially this is my own fault for reading the blurb and expecting the film to match the blurb <laughs> but they will tell you that you know this is the campaign that changed campaigns forever and and whatever and i'm sure that's true but the film doesn't really explain how or why it just kind of drops you in the middle of the lives of these people and there's some very interesting stuff there it's a lot of quaint stuff like the i'm sure we'll get into all of it but the brazil potential scandal which i mean <laughs> as they said in the 2008 one you know now the scandal would be if it was made in america but um you know that it's it's just and uh, yeah to, to dave's point the the uh jennifer flowers stuff and other stuff has, does not age well but um it i just feel like the film is uh, it's a little bit unorganized and i think that having watched the supplements and knowing how they made it it, it's very clear why they had very, very limited access. The film kind of portrays that they had far more access than they actually did. And so they managed to put together, uh, you know, a reasonably compelling narrative with the film they were able to get. And there's certainly some really nice historical moments here, you know, shots of Clinton, shot, things that the campaign staff said, but it just doesn't quite come together into anything for me. And, and I do agree with Scott that, and David that it sort of has a, Ultimately, it kind of it is in itself sort of a propaganda message, and 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 D.A. Pennebaker kind of talks about that in some of the supplements, like this, that you know this was going to be their film, and that's always true of a documentary. And what were they selling? They were selling you know Bill Clinton. So I I don't know it it it's I, you know I, I think it's a it's a I'm very happy we have this film to watch, and I think it's it is a interesting look into something we don't usually get a look into at that level, or certainly not to that point. But it has a lot of flaws, so. Yeah, I guess that's where I'm at. Okay. So for fun, I'm going to push back on on the consensus and say, I think this is... <laughs> Please I do. Th I think this is a rather incredible film. Um, I saw it, I think, when it came out, not in the theaters, but on a screener that year. And I've always been fairly invigorated by it. Um, now, when I was younger... I did not have as complex an understanding and I was just kind of a fan of the Clintons, you know, I was just sort of like a fan of, of the democratic party in general and, uh, had a sense in which they were being targeted unfairly by, you know, various things at the time, mm -hmm. uh, you know? Um, so, so it's, it's pretty, uh, my, my young mind was not sort of aware of some of the more complex issues that you've just raised. But I think, I think I'd say that it's, it's interesting to think about, this again, like with a lot of our discussions, is a film first, and then um, it smuggles a message in some way. And what that message is, I'm not entirely certain. It, it could be seen as a propaganda film because it's very much about winning. And I think something about the invigorating response that I have to the film is it makes me want to win. You know, it, it feels like. Well, why I said in the introduction that it feels like a, a sports documentary to me is I get a very similar response to like a documentary about a marathon runner. You know, it just it makes me want to get out there and win something. So I think it's appropriate to question the authenticity of the message that's delivering. But I don't think it can be both. And I'm not trying to overly conflate uh, David and Scott's perspectives, but. Scott brought up, you know, whether or not this was also a propaganda tool in and of itself. And David brought up that it it certainly fleshes out some of the seeds of some of the more dangerous aspects of our current political environment in terms of spin, questioning truth, not understanding um, that there might be a baseline uh, to actually pursue rather than, you know, 
the perfect way to frame it so that it's the least embarrassing and least embarrassing for you and most embarrassing for your opponent. I don't think it can be both those things because I do, I do think this sheds light on that process, like that sausage making process that, that I think David described mm-hmm. where you see people in, in back rooms trying to frame those arguments, trying to control the news cycle. And I think it does elucidate some of that process and it's helpful to, to see those rooms. I do, I do think whatever limit access they had, um, it's, it's a benefit, at least for me, to see those conversations and see how casually, you know, some of these issues of perspective and, you know, the importance of language are just sort of, you know, thought of as another tool in the toolbox to deploy, you know, with as much severity as possible. And certainly the the conversation around this film and around the concept of the war room admits all of those things, that the one of the reasons why this was a watershed and campaign politics was because the Republican attack machine, as it was described, was was thought of as something that was sort of relentless and that what the Democrats really needed to do was come up with their own version of that. And so here we see them trying to put that philosophy into action. So it, it can be propaganda, but I think it also has to be, if for me, um, at least a window into that world that has some level of authenticity to it. Oh, I don't... I- I don't want to speak for Scott, but I don't think – Scott, you weren't saying necessarily that you feel like it was intentional propaganda, right? Um, I think on some of the campaign's parts, yeah, they had a tool that they could use to get their message out there to get a certain perception of themselves out there. Right. That and that's sure. the yeah. purpose of limiting the access. Uh, as for the filmmakers, uh, it, it's hard to deduce. I think they've been in – somewhat cagey about that in interviews. I think for the most part, it's an easy environment to get caught up in that energy of and kind of give yourself over to without totally thinking through uh, what that means. And to a certain extent, like you could so far into any film, let alone a documentary where you're shooting so much footage, you just kind of have to see it through to completion, even if you don't have as much footage as you want. Um, But they're still left with kind of that end result. Yeah, I would, I would say that the, the, you know, I think I I will push back on your pushback, Jordan, and say that I think Please that, do. <laughs> I think the film absolutely can be a propagandistic tool and reveal something because the people involved in making the film who were pushing their message again, I I I don't believe that the filmmakers were intending to push the message, especially because they were originally wanting to shoot at the Republican. I mean, it's, I guess that's easy for them to say, but I feel like the original film they wanted to make would have been far more pluralistic, but. Uh, to Scott's point, once you're in there, I think you do get you know caught up in it for sure. But I think that the 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 people who were pushing the message were not aware of what they were revealing because they were so focused on their mission. You know, it's such a blinders you know situation, just running straight ahead to be a, a high level campaign executive. I think um, uh, uh, Mary Matlin talks about that in the in the Return of the War Room, where she's like, "I thought that day we were going to win," and I was telling people on on this television show uh, that we were going to win, even though we were losing the states. I said we were winning because I was so caught up; I couldn't believe we weren't going to win. And I think that 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 so that the people involved are pushing their message. I don't even know that it's needs to be as uh, calculated as as anything. It just that that's their message. They are they are their message at that point in their lives. But they also revealed the sort of sausage making portions of that message because they did let these people into their lives. And because like any good documentary filmmakers, they eventually sort of became a part of their story. And so they were allowed to be there for things that had they been thinking about it, they might not have wanted them to be there for. So I think that it can absolutely be both things. 
Yeah, and propaganda isn't always a situation where we're putting out falsehoods knowing that there's a different truth behind it, but we're just going to straight out lie to people to try to convince them. You know, propaganda is just really a way of saying, here's our message presented in a very persuasive way that downplays all the counter arguments and puts forward the appealing aspects of the message that we think is going to connect with the wider audience. So, you know, I I I always enjoy watching propaganda, whether it's from sides that I um, affiliate with or from the opposition, <laughs> because you you know if you can go into it with at least some awareness of yours or their blind spots, you you recognize what it is they're emphasizing, what it is they're downplaying, and and how is this you know framed to psychologically or emotionally appeal to us. To, to win us over and, and and obviously sometimes it works and sometimes it's like oh i can't believe people actually fall for this bullshit but you know <laughs> but but you see that it's it is persuasive if if it connects to a certain mentality or worldview or whatever you want to call it so you know that is that is the thing i mean that i guess that's my my take on this film really is one of ambivalence uh much to re respect uh like other guys have said i'm glad we have this uh we certainly would have not gotten this level of of um intimacy from the bush campaign or you know probably any of the republicans in the year since and i'm not even sure other democrat democratic candidates would be this open at this point in the process just because it's so easy for this footage to take on its own life and get out of control so like i say we see this pivotal moment in american politics um and and it is. It's just really fascinating, especially as a guy. I was, what, 31 years old when all of this was coming down. So, you know, I lived through these events as a as an adult, and I, and I had my own misgivings about Clinton. I mean, I, probably 92 was the least uh, politically engaged, enthusiastic that I've been about a, a presidential election in my adult life. And a lot of it was just because of where I was at. I had four young kids. I was busy. I was just basically making ends meet. And I didn't really like a whole lot of what I saw from any of the candidates. I'm just not a fan of Southern good old boy politicians, for one thing. And and I, I just had a sense that you know Clinton was you know definitely a philanderer and was setting himself up for some kind of trouble here at the same time i didn't really like bush or or perot for that matter so I, i'm not even sure if i voted that election that that might be how distant i was from the process but you know setting my my own biases aside uh it's a pretty fascinating piece of film and and it does capture a, a moment and a time in history it, it has that time capsule aspect which is also pretty cool uh, because you realize even though a lot of these figures are still very much a part of the discourse nowadays uh, so much has changed in the uh you know what 28 years now that uh, uh of, of history and culture and, and politics that have occurred ever since and I don't want to uh, discount either how wildly charismatic both Carville and Stephanopoulos are, um, just as subjects for a film as kind of stars in their own right. I totally get their appeal, and even watching the film, it's hard not get caught up in their energy. I mean, Carville kind of speaks for himself, but even Stephanopoulos, who like comes across as this like insanely nice guy who wouldn't trot on anybody, you know, the second he has a direct mission, he becomes very laser focused and kind of like there's an interesting duality to him that the film kind of. Uh, uncovers and explores that I think is really sharp. And yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to discount like the pure entertainment value of a lot of what goes on in the film. Do you feel like Stephanopoulos and Carville are depicted as heroes here? Is that, is that what happens once the film is edited and packaged? 
they're they're protagonists. They're they're the guys who sort of make make it move. I mean, Clinton is the front man, but they really are engineering behind the scenes, and uh, they're the ones who do the kind of you know beating down the flames uh, so that the candidate can t- continue to shine, uh, as well as firing up the troops. I mean, I think the the, the effect that Carvel had, in particular, in talking to the you know the you know, the foot soldiers, the, the people who are making phone calls and organizing in various states and neighborhoods and, and, and really, you know, the, the rubber hits the road folks, uh, you know, it's not just their connection to the big guy, but it's also how they kind of keep everybody pulling in the same direction. I mean, it is, it is an impressive uh, thing to think about to get that many people all focused on saying, yeah, we want this guy to be the president and uh, you know, all the, you know, all the, just all the impetus that this generates to to really uh, unseat an incumbent. I mean, that is a very bold undertaking to 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 take a you know first term president, especially one with all of the connections, with all of the prestige and and true power that Bush had accumulated, and say, you know what, we're going to interrupt your plans and put a different guy in there. Uh, yeah, congrats to them for for actually pulling it off, and I think. That is sort of the sports analogy there. That is, you know, they got the the, the game-winning field goal or the big touchdown at the end there when, when everything was in the balance. They executed, made the play, and they get to spike the ball and carry home the trophy. Yeah, I think it's it's that, but it's also that, like a sports documentary, no one questions whether or not you should have that boxing fight. You know, no one says, like, well, should we do this marathon? Like, there's no counterpoint perspective that says, well, if – in this battle for controlling the public's point of view, like being as aggressive as possible, being as organized as possible, there's not a single perspective that says, well, should we do this? Not, not about the Brazil thing, not about anything else. Um, and I think that's what makes it so successful. And I, I will I will concede the point. Yes, I, Arik, I, I do agree with you, actually, that something can be an effective propaganda tool and include like a lot of truth. I think that's actually the the battery power for the most successful propaganda is that it's not obviously lies right, right. so you have to have truth for for it to work um but um when i when i get involved in this movie and it moves so quickly i mean i think starting to talk about like the way the film is structured they're very short scenes and clips um and it moves along in in such a way that you as the viewer are not often given the room to question you know what these guys are up to and it it as much as like some of the rhetoric addresses issues of education and poverty and healthcare, you do not think about those things as the movie's unfolding. Would you agree? Oh yeah. And I, it's another question where I, so I wonder the, I would contend and I, I would contend that the success, that the successes of this film are often because of the circumstances of its making and that, you know, they talk about, cause they had basically no money. They were filming on those old, uh, portable, in some sense, uh, film cameras, right? And they were shooting like rolls of like still rolls of film. This is pre digital, obviously. And so they, it was very expensive to shoot. Even they, I think it was like two hundred fifty dollars for like five minutes of film or something like that. So they weren't like just lingering, right? They were getting their shots and kind of getting out. And I think that that's partially why we get such that and the fact that they only had access to like one room. So if people left that room, they couldn't really follow them. I think that there were a lot of structural things that created that that pacing that they then embraced in the editing room. Um, but, but yeah, I, I, I would agree that we, that we don't linger on, but there's certainly no one ever saying, should we do this ever? 
which is which is fascinating. And I don't know if that works partially because it's sort of a fait accompli. Like we know everyone who watches this film knows what happened, right? Like Clinton won, and so they don't really need to. They can't really. It would it would make no sense for them to try to present a drama about that in some sense, right? Because like it's they could not release the film until the election was completed, so it, it was going to be a done deal. So I wonder if that's partially why. But it is, yeah, it is fascinating that they don't they don't ever ask the question, is this a good thing to do? I think their their vibe is basically just like, well, this is what we need to do to win, and winning is a good thing for us to do. So you know, it's a very ends justify the means kind of vibe to the film. And some of those arguments put forth by Carville are a little naive. Uh, you oh, absolutely. Have trouble believing that he even thought those things. Like, if if we are able to fight back the Republican strategy on embarrassing they'll, they'll our never candidate, do it again. like they'll never do it again. We'll <laughs> we'll knock this shit back forever. I think is the quote. And that yeah. I think actually this, the, when I watched it the second time, this time, I've seen it many times. I watched the his audience of staffers at that point. I'm not sure they were totally sold on that line no. either. They applauded, but their faces yeah. kind of betrayed a certain skepticism. That is not right. usual. <laughs> and well, going with the war room motif, if you will, or the theme, you know, like a, a sergeant leading his troops into combat. You know, this is the big one boys we're going to take them down and we're going to you know you know not necessarily end this war but we're going to turn the tide i mean sometimes you just you know bloviate the rhetoric you just pump it up <laughs> to maximum volume to get everybody fired up and ready to charge in knowing that not all of us are going to come back alive <laughs> you know but we we're just going to just going to go all out and 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 do as much damage as we can and and uh, advance the cause so you know the the war room metaphor is probably very well chosen and i think that you know that's that's the thing i mean politics is a very dirty business especially when you're talking about jockeying for positions as influential and as um consequential as as being president of the united states i mean a lot of things change based on who's in that office and all the other people that that person brings along with them in filling out an administration and and capturing the public dynamic and and serving almost as a defining personality for that whole era we talk about the clinton years the bush years the obama years now the trump years you know i mean those that's a there's a lot that pivots on this and so you understand and and i certainly you know have to take all that into account as i as i remark about how sort of discouraging some of the you know reality uh, implications are of this film but that's the thing Uh, there there are very powerful forces that are you know using every maneuver, every trick in the book to, to get that point of advantage. And that's what we see happening here. And and so, you know, most viewers are probably going to sympathize with one side or the other. And probably most people who actually sit down to watch this movie are at least at some point going to be either, you know, supporters of Clinton or at least sympathetic to that side of the argument. Um, I don't know. If there's a lot of Bush voters who really turn back to this one very <laughs> often, you know, uh, <laughs> So if you are sympathetic to Clinton, or at least sympathetic to a Democratic candidate beating Bush, in retrospect, what do we think – I want to address this question of what do we think the De- Democrats maybe should have done? If if not this, then what? Like what does it mean for the Democratic Party to become yeah. savvier at political street fights? Because the reality was, you know – there's something innately wrong with beating your opponent at their own game when you think their own game is morally questionable. But if you don't participate and you continue to fall victim to it, then there's not a clear exit strategy there either. 
that's the utilitarian argument. It's like we've got to play this game because if we don't, then they will just walk in and they will do all sorts of horrible things. I mean, that is the underlying rationale, and that's how you end up apologizing or downplaying or soft pedaling or or sometimes even outright denying things that you know you might say, "Uh, oh, boy, you know this guy really shouldn't have done that," or this isn't really the most honest portrayal of what actually happened, but this is what we're going to go with because. If we were to just lay it all out there, a hundred percent, you know, earnest and sincere, that would just be doom as far as the effect on voters is concerned. So, right, it, it's it's very morally murky and and compromised. But if you're going to have a chance of success, that's what you've got to do. So, yeah, again, I'm, I'm maybe even contradicting things that I've said earlier, but that is just it's it's just kind of an acknowledgement of the sad state of the world, I suppose. You know, a movie like this kind of brings it all to the forefront and especially you know when we're being surrounded by uh, a lot of heated political rhetoric and kind of outrageous brain-numbing stuff going on at the highest levels of our of our government and throughout our society and and like you said even at the opening of what's happening here in Michigan with uh, ordinary people being instigated to the level of you know, plotting serious crimes and thinking they're doing it for a noble, justifiable, you know, constitutional, patriotic cause. That's just how warped and twisted the whole process has become. And it's like, uh, you know, if there's a, an alternate universe portal, I'm ready to jump on through and take my chances. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do think it's fascinating to see the ways that some of the architects of the modern reality, not all of them, but some of them kind of have expressed regret or, you know, th that, that they didn't understand sort of how this would all play out, which I am sure is true, but it is kind of, you know, with the, with the, with the benefit of 2020 hindsight, which is a funny phrase, yeah. uh, <laughs> you know, you can, you can see that the seeds are being laid that the minute that the, and it's not on the, it's not all on the Democrat side. Like, you know, the Republicans were doing those kinds of things for years. And and when Clinton got elected, they ratcheted that up. And then you have Newt Gingrich and, you know, it kind of one thing leads to another. You have, you know, Carl Rove and, and George Bush Jr. And you can kind of see a through line from there to now. But, of course, you also can because it happened that way. You know, if 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 um, if if Dick Cheney had not managed to get his registration changed the last minute from Texas to Wyoming, we wouldn't have needed a recount and Al Gore would have been president. You know, there's many ways that this sort of thing could have gone differently, but, um, it is, it is fascinating in, in a kind of horrible way to see it in such a simple, you know, form at this time that it's, it's so, you know, it's, it's so kind of quaint almost. It's the same world as now, but, but, but like dialed down to like a two mm. or a three. I mean, you see Mary Matlin saying, this is not a sports event about the debate. And it's like, well, everything in politics is now yeah. a, a sports event. You know, you, 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 you get all this stuff, the things that they think are absolute scandals that might destroy the campaign are now, you know, not even one, one day in the current reality we live in. So, you know, and oh, I think, can that, you imagine, I mean, back then it was like, Oh, Bush looks at his watch. He calls them bozos. These are all scandals. And like today yeah. you wouldn't even notice if he I, didn't know what a uh, grocery store scanner was. It just no, wouldn't absolutely. be a story. Yeah. I, I mean, Howard Dean literally lost his chance at, at being the nominee because of a scream, right? Like, <laughs> or whatever, like, yeah. you know, it, it's just, it, it, it's so it, things have been, and you know, the, the, the trend line on this has not been linear. Right. We, we were kind of moving ahead. And then in the last four years, we've kind of accelerated such to such a degree that it's warped 
any understanding. I mean, it just all looks like nonsense. I mean, I'm watching the debate clip that you mentioned with Bush looking at his watch, and I'm like, what's the big deal here? But like, well, you know, it looks at the it time, looks awful. It was shocking. I think it does look bad. I just oh, think no, 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 no. yeah, for sure, yeah. for sure. But I'm not like. But oh, it's not a, it's is, not a crippling blow, you no, know, as, no. especially what we see apologized for or glossed over nowadays. It's just like ridiculous. We've been we'd be told now that he was, you know, I don't know, look, looking to see what time it was because he couldn't believe that this that there was this was still an issue in this day. And, you know, it'd be some nonsense. But like or we just be told he didn't look at it, even though we're watching the video of him looking <laughs> at it or, or whatever. So, you know, I, it, it is. So on that level, it is fascinating. I think, Jordan, that where where I come down is that I think that the film it works in terms of getting to see this stuff, and that's really interesting. I don't think it works as a film, which is sort of a different mm-hmm. issue in, in some ways, right? Like, I, I, don't, I don't find it to be a, a phenomenal documentary, but I do find it to be very interesting as sort of a um, look back at sort of the seeds of the current world. So I think that it has a lot of value that is not necessarily tied to its quality, if that makes sense. It makes a lot of sense, and I, I do want to get into that because the the filmmaking is its own thing here. You know, this is direct cinema uh, related to cinema verite. You know, handheld snippets of time. The access that you've talked about um, certainly was one of the limitations on how this was put together, and maybe dictated some of those aesthetics. But I think it was also sort of innate in the type of filmmaking that it was to have this choppy structure, you know, this mm. this rhythm of small moments braced against each other, where each small moment doesn't necessarily have any punctuation, but that a punctuation is, is achieved through juxtaposition, and the narrative tension is achieved through the discontinuity of the moments rather than the continuity of the moments. Um, but one of the aspects of that, I, and I like all of that, I mean, I'm, I'm actually... I'm really, you know, when I was when I was watching it and 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 trying to think, you know, about the the introduction that I was going to write for today's episode, and one of the moments that really stood out to me was the one I started with, where George is just sitting in his office and he's making phone calls. Like there's nothing to that moment, but it is somehow revealing of the energy in that room and and maybe even the lack of energy in that room. Um, and the way that it's used, I think, is is very effective. Maybe, you know, it was the one of the only shots they have of George and the office on the phone. Regardless, I think it's the way that it's edited in makes you not question that until much later, until you're much further along thinking about this film. Yeah, I will say that it feels like it, every time I watch it, it takes a while to get started because there's we find out kind of in the making of that there's so much catch-up they had to do. They didn't start filming until, I think, the convention. And so they're using other people's footage to catch up with the primary structure uh, to get some snippets of uh, Bill Clinton behind the scenes. Um, So I think the first, like, half hour or so is pretty herky-jerky in terms of just establishing the narrative, which, especially now, I mean, in 93, you could understand that there's a lot more context to it. But for someone like me who was, what, I was six years old when this election happened. Like I, I don't, <laughs> I don't have the context to know like all the little scandals they're referencing. Um, and so a lot of that, those primary season jockeying um, just feels like kind of scattered nonsense uh, this far removed from it. But I, I do think once it kind of gets into its rhythm, the kind of disparate snippets you're talking about, Jordan do kind of add up to kind of an emotional narrative. So Scott, the, the fact that you can't put these things into context is, is another I wouldn't say it's not necessarily a flaw, but it's kind of like in comedy where they say, you know, don't tell the joke with too many contemporary specifics because your joke won't exist next year. Um, So the fact that it runs through like Jennifer Flowers and the the draft letter and not really putting the Hampshire, uh, New Hampshire primary win in context or Ross Perot's, you know, revolving door candidacy at a certain point in your political education, 
like then you were able to put these things in fuller context than perhaps the first time you saw it is is that correct uh insofar as i've bothered to do so i, I mean like <laughs> yeah the, the yeah. context yeah. is sort of given insofar as like you understand that these are attacks made on bill clinton and there are things that the campaign's trying to battle against um i still don't really know what the draft letter is all about um uh, and there are some other scandals. Oh, well, they kind of go into kind of his trip to Moscow, which I don't really understand the context of. Um, but I do really enjoy Carville's kind of nonsense, like, well, who cares about uh, batting back yeah. of it? <laughs> yeah, as I was watching this, I did have the thought, how would this play to somebody who isn't, you know, steeped in American politics or like yourself, Scott, somebody who was really young and, and not really engaged uh, when all of these events were happening? I mean, that's that's another thing. It's very hard for me to not feel like I'm watching CNN reruns or something like that mm. when I, yeah, because, <laughs> because I'm just so used to these characters, uh, Carvel and Stephanopoulos in particular, you know, being such influencers about political opinions and whether you agree with them or not, they're still right there kind of shaping the dialogue. Uh, Carvel pops up every campaign about how it's going because uh, he's the guru and Stephanopoulos of course does one of those Sunday morning talk shows. So he's been a fixture for decades now. Uh, but you know, if you're watching, if you're, if you're just a fan of documentary films or you want to try to understand the American political process, there is a lot of shorthand here that really doesn't provide background. And it's, it is this, the style of cinema verite, direct cinema, fly on the wall, whatever. Um, and, and, and it, it almost maybe feels more like a newsreel. I mean, this was, this was filmed and put out the next year when all of these events were still very fresh in everybody's mind. And it was kind of novel and kind of exciting to see not just what was, what made it to the, you know, evening news uh, broadcast, but what was going on in, you know, that proverbial war room, uh, as people were making real time decisions that really steered the campaign and rescued it from oblivion and, and doom and gloom and, and actually gave it forward looking energy. I mean, that is another interesting part of the story. I mean, you know, not that I've ever had any serious, you know, chances or anything, but I would never want to get into politics and I just wouldn't want my life and my, uh, you know, my family, my relatives and my, and, and just, you know, the people I care about exposed to that kind of, uh, scrutiny and, and ridicule and, and slander. But these people, you know, did that. They put themselves out there. They persevered. They accomplished something of significance. Um, whether you're a, a huge fan of the Clinton presidency or you see it as a lost opportunity or as a, an abomination that should have never happened in the first place. Uh, that, that's all beside the point, but they actually did, you know, achieve, you know, consequential, significant things in this process. And, and here we get to see kind of a unique, a little bit more of an extended look. I mean, I think about, you know, the you know, primary, the, you know, the, uh, and those early JFK documentaries that were released a couple of years ago by Criterion as another example of kind of the, you know, the introduction of new technology, getting cameras into places that, you know, heretofore had never been really, you know, recorded in that way before, and certainly not released to the public. So there's a lot of public service going on here. And, um, you know, I think, you know, giving it sort of uh, a lot of respect to Pennebaker's uh, and Hedges's sleight of hand that they really did take fragments and were able to, you know, use their experience of editing and and synthesizing uh, a story uh, so that it, it does become compelling in its own terms, uh, whether or not it's one we want to, you know, watch you know, over and over again or, or recommend to others. Uh, that's going to be a matter of personal taste. But they, I think they, they did accomplish something pretty significant. And I think you know, as a criterion release, I think the Pennebaker heritage in particular uh, certainly warrants this level of attention. 
yeah, how would you put this film into the anybody, uh, not necessarily just David, the Hedgedis and and or Pennebaker's larger body of work? It, I think he's well. I don't know. Pennebaker made fifty films, right? And I definitely have not seen all of them, but I would put this at a certainly at a lower tier than some of his. Certainly, the ones he did with. Um, uh, uh, what's the guy's name? Who uh, the films of Robert Drew? Is that his name? So yeah, the Kennedy the, films. The Kennedy films of Robert Drew are definitely a whole level above this, I would say. But I also think that Don't Look Back is above this. Monterey Pop, I would put above this. I, I, I think th- this would be for me kind of in the mid tier of of his of his films. It's uh, you know, like I said, I think it's extremely valuable as a artifact and also is entertaining to watch. I just you know, for me, it's kind of a middle of the road documentary for and for him, yeah, probably. A tier below some of those really, really phenomenal films that he made. And Ark, you also brought up the the bonus film on this yeah. release, which is Return to the War Room, I think it's called. And yeah. this one is, I think, listed as Chris Hedges's. Uh, uh, she directed this. Piece. No, they're both. They both did. Are they both there? Yeah. I know. I know. Penny Baker's involved, but I thought she was listed as the primary director. I could be wrong. Um, I, I know. Uh, I don't think Penny Baker's listed as a cameraman on this, so I think his involvement is at least slighter and you're right in your description that it's more of a talking heads piece yeah and you said that in some ways it's a better film and i i think i don't think it's a better film i think it certainly elucidates the points better because again it's relying on people describing events rather than seeing events which is what the war room does i enjoy it uh i was kind of interested if if anybody here thought that that film detracts from the war room because it is so explanatory. But just before we go on, I, 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 yeah. I think there was a misunderstanding there. I'm not suggesting that the return is a better film. Uh, oh, okay. I'm, I'm, I'm purely suggesting that it is uh, to me was more fascinating because I think it includes far more information about how they changed campaigns and what was actually going on and all the pieces that they're now willing to talk about that were around the clips that they managed to get. So for me, it was super illuminating. Like I found it very interesting informationally, but it is a far, far worse film. Uh, Okay. (laughs) Agreed. Yeah. 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 And it certainly... It works as a propaganda tool much more effectively because it's it's no longer you know a piece of work that has artistic merits. It it is really just about its topic, right? But they got so many more of the people involved, and you know Mary Matlin talks a lot. And I mean, we we could have done an entire episode on the relationship between James Carville and Mary Matlin, which is I remain. Yeah completely obsessively fascinated by like i do not understand how those two people are married and have children together it just is mind-boggling to me it's just a, it destroys a, me in a way yeah to think it's about the weirdest it. Yeah. it kind of like removes anything that he says like i just i'm like well do you really believe in it like and it's so yeah. it's so not yeah. 2020 america right like that would just be impossible and they talk about that in the, in, the, in the film but i think that getting like you know mickey uh um canter canter and dd myers and you know all these other people who were in the film, you know, more, way more Paul Begala, not just like a, a cameos, like getting those people because they didn't really have access to them in 92 is, is super interesting. So I would say the return of the war room to me is a fascinating, but for certainly not a good film. Well, I think it makes this whole package a lot more, you know, it coalesces into yeah. something more substantial. I mean, yeah. you really do get a, a document of the history and, and the times and the significance. So, you take the whole thing as a package and yeah, that's where I say this is a, this is a pretty worthwhile criterion addition because For sure. yeah. it, it, it rounds out the picture much more than the, you know, 96 minute, uh, you know, collage that, that, that Hedges and Pennebaker initially put together. I definitely enjoy it. I mean, it does feel like a special feature to me though, not a film. 
Yeah, I mean, it was for TV. It was for like TV, right? I that means it wasn't. Assume so. Yeah, no, I get it. Yeah, (laughs) Um, I really feel like my experience of it becomes a much more paler, shallow experience, just because I am. I think ultimately more interested in the sort of filmic endeavors of the War Room, given that. I am also someone who's been a fan of the Democratic Party. You know, I also enjoy like the Hillary, you know, biopic series that was just on Hulu. I don't think of it as a great film. I kind of, I'm a political junkie. You know, I was 13 when the war room came out, but I was attracted to newspapers early on. So I'm going to be interested either way, but I do as an adult kind of, I'm, I'm much more inclined to like, say, revisit the war room because of its filmic qualities. And I kind of like to think of it as separate. The fact that there's this sequel, so to speak on here, um, does in some ways kind of muddy it for me. I, I, I think that you need to have that film with it to make this package like as a, you know, as an, as a, as a product from criterion, if you will, like, I think that film, puts so much more context onto the original film and you get the, the artistry of the original film, which is far higher. And then you get the information of the second film and it kind of comes together in my mind now and creates almost like one piece for me that I think is more valuable as a, you know, some of the things, some of the films in the collection are not there necessarily for their pure cinema achievement. They're there for their cultural impact or they're there for the, um, you know, their place in film history or whatever other reason. And I think for, for this film, that extra information really lifts the entire thing as a total package uh, to something far more valuable and and worthwhile of, of having than it would without it. David, in your initial thoughts, you said something about the fact that some of the events that are depicted in this film lead to our current political problems. And I was wondering if you wanted to flesh that out a little bit, like what development specifically? Well, I think maybe I've already sort of alluded to it, if not said it outright, but I I just feel like, you know, when when a campaign uh, is advancing the cause of a candidate who has uh, has conducted certain acts you know made certain statements done things that uh, would not sit well with voters um, just that that tendency to spin and to to you know just kind of throw a little slant on it to take take cast the credibility of the person making the charges and and dump on that person rather than own up to perhaps what actually happened again you know the you know the Jennifer for flowers, the quote unquote bimbo eruptions and all of that stuff. I remember very clearly that that was a big concern is that, you know, Bill Clinton was, you know, a schmoozer and a ladies man and had probably had a number of, uh, you know, extramarital affairs and, and at the time and, and still that's considered pretty much like you shouldn't be doing that type of stuff if you really want to be president. I mean, there is a, a sense of how the office should be uh, respected and a person who's going to take on that role should have, you know, a, a, a particular level of self-control. Now, that may seem very naive and very wholesome and aw shucks, golly gee, but there's a lot of people. Who, I mean, I, I feel like myself, you know, the way I live my life, if I had done certain things that would disqualify me from, you know, levels of responsibility or would make me a hypocrite if the truth came out, I just don't think that it's right to put yourself in that situation and say, vote for me because I'm, I'm Mr. You know, awesome. Now, again, it's it's all very shaded and, and I understand that there's counter arguments and you got to do what you got to do. And, and if we don't win, the bad guys do. 
It's just it's just a very nasty, you know, entanglement that that one gets into. So I think it, I think it may be more of an existential uh, dismay that I'm feeling rather than oh, I wish Paul Songas had won <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> but there is that feeling that there yeah, might be right. something better about Paul Songas or Jerry Brown. Sure, Dennis sure, uh, right. for life. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's a, that's the thing, you know. I mean, I, there are there are. I guess I just have that that old John Lennon idealism, you know. Just imagine, you know, if if, if uh, things were the way they could be, should be. But again, the, the noble and 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 pure hearted people of the world aren't the ones who really want that level of power and control and authority. Uh, it's the bastards who who want to be there, and those are the ones who are willing to. Put everything else aside in, in pursuit of that, uh, in, in pursuit of that advantage and, and, and that control. So, it's just the nature of the beast, I guess. The, the legacy of the war room as a concept is interesting to me, in the way that it's talked about—that this was a, a watershed in the way campaigns were run. But the fact that it's it's described by Stephanopoulos and Carville and, and all involved at the time—that this was a response to a strategy that they didn't really have a way to organize against. And in retrospect, though, it's, it's, it's kind of quoted as the, the seed for the way that political campaigns are run now, that everyone wants their own war room. And so it's, it's, I wonder if this is a strange way of mythologizing what happened here, also a way for maybe the Republican Party to kind of give credit to the other side for nasty political behavior. Oh, it's always better to shift blame and to portray oneself as the victim. You know, it wasn't us. It was those guys who made me made me do it, you know. So, yeah, I, I think the war room concept, you know, did catch on and the Republicans were, you know, developed their own version of it and incorporated their own history of dirty tricks into this new socially savvy thing. I mean, Obama did the same thing with social media in 08 and even 2012. And then Trump used social media to his own advantage in 2016. And now we've got this big, you know, cosmic uh, duel going on to see which side's going to prevail in a few weeks from now. So <laughs> we'll be on the other side, you know, and, uh, and kind of figure out what the landscape's going to look like when we go forward. Um, while I have the mic a quick minute, because I know our time is winding down, I do want to give a, a very quick recommendation to a Criterion Channel bundle that's out that does feature the yes. War Room. So if you don't own the the disc, you can check it out. I'm not I'm not sure if you have all the features on on that uh, in that bundle, but there's two They're films. There. They are good, excellent. Well, so you can you can dig into the whole enchilada there. But I want to uh, promote the Last Party, which is a documentary starring Robert Downey Jr., which is made right around the same time and actually documents the '92 campaign. I really love that. I haven't even watched the whole thing, but I, I find that much more invigorating and engaging. Have you have you guys saw that one yet or not? No, but I'm adding it to my list right it's, now. Absolutely. It's phenomenal. At, at very, very exciting because it's young Robert Downey Jr. before any of the Avengers, of course. Uh, I think he had just come off of the Chaplin uh, biopic and all of that. But he's uh, he's sort of like the man in the street talking to people. And uh, it's really amazing because it's more of a Gen X grungy type of look at the whole 92 campaign. And then The Best Man, which is a Henry Fonda, Cliff Robertson kind of a melodrama made in 1964 about a, a campaign uh, contest between two sort of archetypes of American 
politics, the earnest public servant versus the ruthless, uh, you know, power hungry Machiavellian go for the throat type. And uh, it, it's definitely worth watching. Uh, I watched it last night with Julie and it's it's pretty fascinating in the context of 1964, of course, right after JFK's assassination and Barry Goldwater versus LBJ for uh, reelection or whatever. Um, you know, it, it really shows a lot of the you know, apocalyptic level issues that we're dealing with now are very much present in 1964 as well. Uh, yeah, I watched. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I just want to before we wrap it up, just to, on that point about uh, Obama and and all this other stuff. Like, I do think that yeah, it, it there's a it, there could be a fascinating side sideline of documentaries or thought, and I'm sure there is about sort of the evolving campaign strategies that 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 is a lot of what this film is trying to portray because we we do see that you know as one campaign succeeds in one election cycle with something, then the the next election cycle, you know, everyone's using it. And certainly, you know, Obama did a lot of things in, in 08 with Facebook that we were very upset about in 2016 when they were done <laughs> as well. So I think, yeah. you know, the, the, the campaigns are constantly trying to find ways structurally to get out their message and, and convince people to vote and things of that nature. And it just is a sort of a constant evolution um, as, as technology changes, you know, I think they talk about that a little bit in some of the supplements in terms of polling and cell phones and these kinds of things. So it, that's a whole other fascinating sideline, uh, that you get to see really in, at this point, quaint looks at cause 92 is a very long time ago in terms of election technology. Well, I'd like to echo David's recommendation for the last party. I watched it yesterday and it is a very cool compliment to watching the war room because it was made right at the same time. And it does have a much more like deliberate string that leads you through it. It's Robert Downey Jr. He comes off as a very interesting young man, kind of troubled by the world that he's facing and trying to get a sort of a deeper, more complex grasp of it. And he interviews he's definitely troubled. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And he's, he's pretty clear about that. Um, and his dad's in it as uh, other celebrities are in it, but he's also kind of more importantly interviewing just people on the street, trying to have access to their point of view and what, you know, their world is like. So it's pretty cool. I'd also recommend the documentary feed, which is not part of that package, but Chris Hedges mentions it um, briefly in one of the interviews because she was actually able to get a shot from the director, Kevin Rafferty. So that's on YouTube and it's a, it's an assemblage of different coverage of the New Hampshire primaries in 92 and the film primary colors. I rewatched also kind of preparing for this show, wondering if it would hold up it has John Travolta and Emma Thompson portraying counterparts, fictional counterparts of, of the Clintons. And uh, it, it's a bit dated. There are times when the script feels um, flashy when it doesn't need to be, but overall I was still pretty happy with that film. And the lead up to election day, I would just say, everybody, please take this process seriously. I, I assume our, our listener base is already is already engaged and, and interested, but it uh, goes without saying, November 3rd, you know, go vote like your life counts on it. And also, happy birthday, Ryan Gallagher, today, the founder of Criterion Cast. So hope he's having a good day. You can follow me on Instagram at Jordan Esso. Scott, where can people find more of your work online? On Twitter, a rail of tomorrow, and then a battleship pretension. Uh, one of the co-hosts, Tyler Smith, is on paternity leave, uh, so I'm filling in, uh, co-hosting the show weekly for the next few weeks. Nice, very cool, very cool. What about you, David? 
Uh, I'm wrapping up season three after almost two years of podcasting of uh, Criterion Reflections. Uh, we just released our episode on Harold and Maud, which is the last feature film of 71 that I'll be covering. And I uh, will start recording probably in the next week or two, uh, kind of a compendium of, of reviews of short films from 1971, some of those bonus features and, and miscellany that uh, Criterion throws onto discs and elsewhere. So that'll be the final episode of that season. Then I'll be kind of looking ahead to year-end episodes. I know it's only October, but uh, you know I'll maybe take a little break from my regular podcast and attend to other projects and maybe even revamp the format a little bit. But that's kind of where I'm at. Uh, Criterion Cast is the host of all my stuff. Got to start looking to see what your favorite cover is. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> and, Arik, is there a place where we can find more of your work online? Yeah, cinemagadfly.com is where I've been writing about the Criterion Collection for God, seven years now, which seems impossible. And, uh, you know, this, this year has been very good for me for movie watching, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's, that's the primary spot for me. And you've got your, your podcast just released a new episode where you had some uh, sort of theme of two guns in history. Is that right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah the latest episode of Fun Fact. Uh, I, I just was shocked at how many two gun people and things and places and movies there are. So, yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of people who have been known as two gun. <laughs> Looks like a great listen. So everybody check that out. And we look forward to next time we all meet up. In the meantime, I'd just like to thank all three of you for joining me for this conversation today. I really enjoyed talking about this film, watching it again, and getting your takes on it. It was elucidating. Thanks, everybody. Get you next time. Bobby thumbed the diesel down Just before it rang And we rolled all the way into New Orleans I pulled my harpoon out of my dirty red bandana And I'm playing soft while Bobby sang the blues Windshield wipers slapping towels Old and Bobby's hand in mine We sang every song that driver Freedom's just another world for nothing left to lose No sound, it's nothing if it ain't free and feeling God was easy though, and it's same news. Feeling good, you know, was good enough for me. It was good enough for me and my father McGee. Oh, the king. Turkey cold miles to California, sir. Yeah, Bobby shared the secrets of my soul. Through all kinds of weather, through everything we do, 
La <laughs> 